Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, October 11th, 2010. Yeah, I feel like I should say, like, star date. You know, star date, October 11th, 2010. It's just, I mean... I feel like I'm in a sci-fi movie at this point. The, the, <laughs> the things that are being done in the name of Christianity are just whew, weird. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying and, well doing nowadays in the name of God to the Word of God. You'll know what I'm talking about here in a minute when we get to the news. You know what? <laughs> you know, I, I say it over and again. There's no shortage of bizarre things being said and now done in the name of God that, you know, like I said at the top of the program, I you know, I feel like I'm in a sci-fi movie. I mean, what here's the question what's the point of having a bible <laughs> you know you know god actually revealing uh, himself in his word uh, you know this is a direct revelation from god all scripture is god breathed and uh what's the point of having a god breathed god revealed scripture if people in the christian church won't have their consciences bound by it, won't limit their doctrine and teaching regarding God, won't let it be limited to what the Scriptures teach and confess. Now, work with me here, because I'm going to go on a little bit of a journey, okay? And as a result of it, I, I, my, it's going to seem like my thoughts are wandering, but they're not. They're, they're, I'm going somewhere with this, but I need to kind of flesh it out. So, in order to do that, let's let's talk about it. Over the weekend, uh, I went to see, uh, you know, with my wife and uh, daughters, we went and saw the Disney movie Secretariat. Fantastic movie, just absolutely an amazing story. Just, I mean, it was the I, you know I love these kind of movies. This is like this particular genre of of movie is like one of my favorites. You, I, you know, I think of other movies in this genre would be the. Uh, the story that was recently done regarding the um, Miracle on Ice, the 1980 uh, U.S. Olympic hockey team. I think of the movie The Rookie. Uh, you know, there, there's something about these stories that are based on real life that, you know, of, of people who have, you know, who really kind of stand up 
And uh, rather than let life happen to them, they are going to chase after something that they have strong convictions about. And you're saying, Roseboro, you sound a lot like Rick Warren and, you know, this dream thing. No, actually, I think qualitatively there's a difference. But anyway, it was, it's a fantastic movie. In fact, I, I, can't, I, cannot re, um, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I mean, if you're looking for a good movie that you and the wife or you and the husband or you and your kids – uh, you know, or you want to make a ladies' night out of it. If you want to go out and 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 you know, and just a movie that you don't have to worry about uh, a, a message regarding uh, illicit drug use, um, uh, premarital sex, you know, all those things that really I think just distract from a good story. Uh, you know, if you're if you're not if you want to have go to a movie where you can just go and enjoy a well told story. I mean. There's no major special effects. I can't. I, I don't. I don't recall a single explosion in the um, <laughs> in the movie. Yeah, and, and so as a, re- I mean, there's. I mean, there. But that being said, there's also some thorny uh, challenges in life that are that are dealt with, and and uh, and some interesting I- you know, ideas that are you know kind of brought to the table that are done in a way that that challenge some things. But overall, a great story. So. Uh, Friday evening, uh, not Friday, Saturday evening, I got home and, uh, you know, I just, I, I, I was still, my eyes were still red because, uh, yeah, I'm a sap that way. You know, I, 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 you get me in a movie where it's well told and there's these emotional moments and, you know, well, wouldn't you know it, water starts coming out of my eyes. I, it's the weirdest thing. I, I don't know how to explain it. Of course I'm a guy and I don't have any feelings, so I'm still you know, um, rather perplexed about this entire mystery of uh, water actually coming out of my eyes. Anyway, um, so, you know, I was still, you know, cleaning things up from the water coming. And I and I you know, sent out a tweet and put a Facebook status uh, simultaneously using TweetDeck. And, uh, you know, basically telling people, this is a great movie, go and see it, bring Kleenex, you'll need it, that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and you know, within, you know, within six or, you know, four to six hours, uh, somebody came onto my Facebook wall and basically said, uh, you know, you can't be going to Christians by, you know, that are produced by Walt Disney because he was a Mason and and uh, and uh, he promotes witchcraft. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> it's like, what is that? Ser- huh? And so, uh, you know, uh, you know, and I, and, you know, of course, you know, I I don't sit there and hover on my Facebook wall. And so, I mean, this guy had commented and already there was a a semi-passionate exchange taking place on my Facebook wall. And, you know, I I eventually chimed in and, you know, said, listen, listen, you know, here's the deal is that um, I I recognize that people have Christians, our Christian, my Christian brothers and sisters, you have the freedom to not go to any movie you don't want to. You have the freedom to not go, okay? And unless there's a clear violation of God's moral law, I have the freedom to go to a movie. Uh, you know, I have the Christian freedom to go to a movie and enjoy it. Now, uh, it, that being said, um, what's the issue here? Is that there was a gentleman who came onto the Facebook wall who wanted to bind the consciences, you know, basically make the case if you're a Christian, then you cannot do X, Y, or Z. Now, 
The Bible makes it clear that we are not free to sin. And as a Christian, we don't have the freedom to commit adultery. We don't have the freedom to lie. We don't have the freedom to dishonor our parents. We don't have the freedom to covet. We don't have the freedom to steal. You know, that uh, that that our consciences are clearly bound by the Word of God because such behavior is not in keeping with repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's that that's that's fruit that runs contrary to the fruit that's produced in our lives through the through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, if somebody is you know saying, "Hey, listen, I have a I'm a Christian, and you know I I got to tell you, you know." I just love, just, you know, I just love the stuff that I stole from Best Buy last week. I yeah, got to tell you, you know, they weren't looking and I was able to fit a 56-inch LCD high-definition uh, television set in my pocket while they weren't looking. And I was able to make it out the door. And boy, I tell you, I, this is the best thing ever. And, you know, c- come on over to my house. Let's watch television on this on this great television set that I stole. You, you think, um, <clears throat> What? You're proud of the fact that you stole a an L, a 56 inch LCD high definition uh, television set, and you say you're a Christian. You you your conscience wasn't pricked at all. You didn't feel any remorse or uh, guilt uh, that you had sinned against God by breaking one of the commandments the one that says thou shalt not steal oh no no don't worry about it. jesus died for all my sins so i i could do whatever i want i mean i could steal i can i can covet you know i can you know, in fact i lie about people all the time and and i'm not i don't feel any remorse no 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 jesus died for all my sins no big deal you know you sitting there with something <clears throat> something screwy here something's really 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 screwy here and and so in our experience, especially today, we've got people who want to bind our consciences where the Scripture hasn't bound our conscience. If you're a Christian, then you cannot do X, Y, or Z. And X, Y, or Z, well, it's not forbidden by God's Word. For instance, if you are truly a Christian, then you know that God's Word you know, through these uh, passages that uh, I'm going to take out of context and weave them together into a different story, make it clear that you do not have the freedom as a Christian to send uh, letters via FedEx because FedEx, well, that's a company that invests in uh, in other companies that uh, engage in X, Y, or Z. You can't be a Christian and drink. You can't be a Christian and dance. You can't be a Christian and play cards. You can't be a Christian and go to movies Produced by the Walt Disney Company. You cannot be a Christian and uh, and play Parcheesi. You cannot be a you know, because well you know Parcheesi. I mean that just sounds satanic right there. You, you see what I'm saying? So here, here's the deal. If there's not a clear prohibition in God's word against a particular thing, then that falls into the realm of Christian liberty. And at that point, you know you you know. Christian liberty basically says you have the freedom to either do it or not do it. it, and you're not less of a Christian or you haven't sinned and you don't need to repent and be forgiven if you do that, okay? 
Then on the other side of that um, coin, there's a whole bunch of people who call themselves evangelical Christians who, where God's word clearly says certain behavior, X, Y, or C, is not in keeping with repentance uh, and the life of the Spirit, but rather more reflects the life that is still enslaved to sin, death, and the devil, that there are certain things we don't do. Okay, there are those people who say, no, 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 listen, we have freedom everywhere, and it doesn't matter, we don't need the law, who needs, oh, come on, yes, the the law can't, you know, that's that's for babies. You know, you know, listen, listen, we're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want. So what I'm describing are two completely different ruts. One rut is legalism, and the other is uh, antinomianism. Okay, legalism basically wants to bind the consciences of, uh, and basically make it so that your salvation is contingent about, uh, upon your behavior, whereas antinomianism, the flip side of the same coin, the opposite rut uh, basically says no, no, no. You're free. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You, you, you know, you, you want to commit adultery? Go ahead. You want to do, uh, you know, nah, nah, don't worry about it. It's all taken care of. Yeah. See, neither one of those is biblical Christianity, and both of them are a misunderstanding of God's word. And Christians live this side of the resurrection in the tension between law and gospel because we still struggle with our sinful nature. We're not set free to sin. We're set free from sin. In fact, sin is the thing that enslaved us in the first place. And so we don't. It's it, it, it. Christians. It's not the Christians don't have the freedom to just go out and wantonly sin. At the same time, Christians don't need to bind the consciences of people and tell them they're being sinful when there's no prohibition in the Scripture against uh, a particular behavior, whether it's you know uh, viewing a movie, whether it's uh, you know enjoying a glass of uh, an adult beverage with a meal. Thing you know, there's no there's no clear prohibition against such things like that in the Scripture. And so you know we have we have freedom in those things, and you know and you know seriously it's so anyway coming back to all of this so on the one hand you got people binding consciences where they shouldn't be bound and on the other hand you got people whose consciences should be bound and they're not and you got to be careful on both sides of that because both of those are ruts think I mean if you were to think of it this way. Uh, you know, we've all traveled down a country road, country highway, where the road itself was somewhat elevated against the landscape, and so, and you know, and so the shoulder ended up in a ditch on you know. So there's a ditch on one side, there's a ditch on the other side. We as Christians got to make sure that as we travel this road of Christianity, that we don't end up on in either ditch. One ditch is legalism. The other ditch is antinomianism. Neither one of them are biblical Christianity. And so we understand that God's law accuses us, God's law condemns us, God's law shows that we're sinners, and for we, for those of us who have been regenerated through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit through, uh, you know, through, through the preaching of the gospel and His Word, that um, that um, we are not free free from the law in the sense that. Uh, that that means that we can go out and just wantonly sin. That no, not at all. In fact, we wrestle with our sinful nature. In fact, the Christian life is well, kind of one of a warfare. You know, where the you know our regenerated spirits are fighting with our flesh, uh, you know, so that we don't produce continue producing fruit in keeping with death. And and uh, that's that struggle is going to continue. Until we die or Christ returns and we're resurrected. But we're not, uh, Christianity is not a license to sin. 
Oh, well, listen, I got my uh, I got my get out of jail free card. You know, listen, look at I, you know, I, I right here. I've got a card in my wallet that says I made a decision for Jesus. All my sins are forgiven so I can go out and sin all I want. That's not the gospel. And yet at the same time, our salvation is not contingent upon our law keeping. You know, as the legalists, uh, really, that's the result of their teaching. So, you know, we live in this tension between law and gospel. The law condemns us, and the law shows us what a good work is, and we're free in Christ to love and serve our neighbors. And it's God's will for us to love and serve our neighbors. And because we've been raised from the dead, because God has graciously given us the gift of salvation, repentance, the forgiveness of our sins, and has done this by, by no merit on our part, the fruit of that repentance is loving and serving our neighbor. And the Ten Commandments show us what good works are. And we can't help but do those good works because we're a new creation in Christ. That's what we do. Yeah, see, that's... Anyway... All of this is to kind of, you know, segue into um, where we are going to go today. And um, I, I don't even know what music I could come up with to uh, to segue into this. So I'll just use the uh, the news music here as we uh, take a look at a, a a news story that broke over the weekend. Um, and uh, you know, I I saw it in the Guardian in the UK and uh, from the Guardian in the UK. Yeah, this is a story about the Insane Clown Posse. Yeah, the in, y- y'all familiar with the Insane Clown Posse? Uh, the Insane Clown Posse uh, is, well, is a rap group that's been around for a while. And, um, well, they dress in really scary uh, you know, kind of clown faces. I am not a fan of clown faces, by the way. That's just me. Um, ever since I was, you know, when I was a kid, I saw the um, uh, the movie Poltergeist. And uh, they had that scary clown that attacked those kids in the middle. Ever since that, I seen the movie uh, Poltergeist as a kid. Um, I've been, I've, I've had this hate relationship with clowns. Anyway, uh, the the name of the headline, by the way, is "Insane Clown Posse and God Created Controversy." Uh, this is by John Ronson, not Ron Johnson, but John Ronson of the Guardian in the UK, and. Uh, the subhead to the article is America's nastiest rappers in shocking revelation. They've been evangelical Christians all along. Now, must confess, I have never heard of the Insane Clown Posse. I don't listen to rap. I've, I've, it's never really been anything that has been remotely appealing to me. And uh, especially the whole culture around it, um, treating women terribly, you know, the, the drug gangster thing that goes, I'd never, yeah, I, it just never appealed to me. It seemed to run contrary to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And in fact, the things that they glorify in rap are the very things that I've been set free from as, as a result of the cross of Christ. So I, it's never really been something that's appealed to me. But anyway... Uh, John Ronson writes, he says, Milwaukee, a bad and quite eerie part of town. This happens to be the very block where the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer murdered and ate 17 people in the 1980s. Now, from all around, thousands of young men and women wearing scary clown face paint are descending upon a disused indoor swimming pool that has been transformed into a music venue. They are... Juggalos, or fans of Violent J and Shaggy Too Dope, the rap duo known as the Insane Clown Posse. 
juggalos. So if you, if those, so those people who really are fans of insane clown posse are they're called juggalos. And um, the the names of the two guys who are the main rappers in this group are called Violent J and Shaggy Too Dope. Okay. Now, at first glance, it might not be obvious why I'm so excited about meeting them. You might dismiss them as just unbelievable, unbelievably misogynist and aggressive. It, and it's true that their lyrics are indeed incredibly offensive. Take, for instance, at random. Here are some random. Um, I I will use caution in reciting their lyrics. Here's some random lyrics. I hate sluts. Shoot them in the face. Step back and itch my nuts. Unless I'm in the sack because I F so hard it'll break their back. Okay. Uh, Insane Clown Posse have been going for 20 years, always wearing clown makeup, which looks slightly lumpy because it's painted over their goatees. They've been banned from performing in various cities where juggalos have been implicated in murders and gang violence. Okay, so this is kind of an important part of this. Okay, the Insane Clown Posse, they've been actually banned in some cities in different parts of the world because their fans have been implicated in murders and gang violence. The Insane Clown Posse have a fearsome reputation fostered by news reports showing teenagers in Juggalo t-shirts arrested for stabbing strangers and lyrics like barrels in your mouth, bullets to your head, the back of your neck all over all over shed, boom shaka, boom chop chop bang. Yeah, these are great lyrics. All of which makes Violent J's recent announcement really quite astonishing. Insane Clown Posse have this entire time secretly been evangelical Christians. What? So, for 20 years, Violent J and uh, his homie Shaggy Too Dope, they've actually been evangelical Christians. And producing music lyrics and products that glorify sex and violence and and have been embraced by gangster people and their and their juggalos have been implicated in murders and violence. Yeah, Insane Clown Posse have a fearsome reputation fostered by news reports showing teenagers. I, I read that. All of which, okay, so, yeah, so, okay, moving along. So they've been, they've only been pretending. Yeah, they, 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 they call Ed Stetzer. Uh, Insane Clown Posse, this entire time they've been engaging in contextualization in order to point people to Jesus. I, I'm not making this up. Yeah, all of which makes Violent J's recent announcement really quite astonishing. Insane Clown Posse have this entire time, not just recently, but the entire time, for 20 years, they've been secretly evangelical Christians. They've only been pretending to be brutal and sadistic to trick their fans into believing in God. So they released a song, The Eye Unveiling, that spelt out the revelation beyond all doubt. <clears throat> so anyway, I'm going to read some of the lyrics. I'm going to have to censor some of them. Um, so they recently released a song entitled Thy Unveiling, which reveals that the entire time they've been evangelical Christians, here are some of the lyrics. 
F it, we've got to tell. By the way, when I say F it, they they don't. Yeah, it's not. They they use the word. F it, we've got to tell. All secrets will now be told. No more hidden messages. Truth is, we follow God. We've always been behind him. The carnival is God, and may all juggalos find him. We're not sorry if we tricked you. Now, the, the news shocked the juggalo community to its core. While some fans claimed they'd actually had an inkling, having deciphered some of the hidden messages in several songs, others said they felt deeply betrayed and outraged. They've been innocently enjoying all those songs about chopping people up and shooting women, and the entire time it's actually been Christian rock? Um, can you call it Christian rock when the song is about chopping people up and shooting women and <clears throat> violent J explained himself unapologetically to a New Jersey newspaper quote you have to speak their language you have to interest them gain their trust talk to them and show them that you're one of them you're a person from the street you can speak of your experience and then at the end you can tell them God has helped me is, is that the Christian gospel the Christian message of course one might argue that 20 years was uh, uh, was under the circumstances an incredibly long time for them to have pretended to be unholy and that from a Christian perspective, the harm they did while feigning unholiness may even have outweighed the greater good. You know, well, they were, see, they were purpose-driven. So I've come to Milwaukee because Insane Clown Posse have just released their most audacious Christian song to date, Miracles. In it, they list God's wonders that delight them each day. Hot lava, snow, rain, and fog, long-necked giraffes and pet cats and dogs, effing rainbows after it rains. There's enough miracles there to blow your brains. The song climaxes with them railing against the very concept of science. Effing magnets, how do they work? And you don't want to talk to a scientist. Y'all mother effers lying and getting me. Yeah. Wow, Christian rock. That's just um what, what um what makes us Christian? Where's Christ and him crucified for our sins, calling juggalos to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Now I understand that the uh, the the clown posse think that they that this is evangelism, but I don't see anything. I don't see the evangel. I don't see the good news. I <clears throat> let me put it this way. Okay, let me let me just put it this way. Christians are called to proclaim the good news. Christians are not called to become the news. Let me repeat that. Christians are called to proclaim the good news. Christians are not called to become the news. Yeah, see, what we're, we're not dealing with the scandal of the cross with the insane clown posse. I mean, and the, here's the deal. Isn't this exactly the same type of methodology being employed by seeker-driven and purpose-driven churches. But then I ask the question, where's the cross? Where's Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins? Their most overtly 
Christian song to date, Miracles, well, it it tells about the wonders of the Creator, yeah, but where's the cross? Yeah, we we got something really really wrong here, and the one of the reasons why we have something really really wrong here is that God's word does bind the consciences of Christians when it comes to glorifying sin and engaging in the behavior that they've been engaging in and singing the lyrics that they've created. God's word does bind the Christian conscience there. We don't have the freedom to go out and do what they've done. This isn't Christianity. This is theistic antinomianism. It's not Christianity. This isn't the gospel they're preaching. They're preaching that they, quote, follow God. Which one? Because I don't see any fruit here that demonstrates that they're following Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, the God of the Bible. Because the fruit of their life shows that their consciences are not bound by the clear teaching of the Word of God. We're not set free to sin. And can you point to one, one of the apostles that engaged in this type of methodology to proclaim the gospel? I can't think of one. Yeah, folks, we've got a real, real problem on our hands here. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes, uh, what, what's wrong with it? Tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, 
that I shall be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they too could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve package. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see here. Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. 
warning. Uh, basically, engaging in sewage morals is not evangelism. Yeah. Glorifying sin and sex and drugs, and that, that, that's not evangelism. It's not even pre-evangelism. Boy, we got a problem, folks. We got a big problem. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That's not the problem. I, sorry, I didn't mean to mesh two ideas together. Just need to remind you, this, this is listener-supported radio. In order for us to continue doing what we do here at Fighting for the Faith, we depend upon your generous financial gifts and contributions. In other words, you get to partner with us, and uh, you can participate in what we're doing here by financially contributing to uh, what we do. Um, you know, I don't own an airplane or Mercedes Benz or anything like that. And in fact, we keep it, we want a pretty financially tight ship here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, I'm not doing this to get rich, I'm doing this to proclaim the gospel. So, anyway, the way you partner with us financially is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons one says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, what you're doing is you're signing up to automatically contribute on a monthly basis, $6.95, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to uh, uh, partner with us with, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, I know the program seems kind of stream of consciousness today. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about in the rest of the program, and then we'll kind of you know, work out where we're going to go and then go there. Um, what I want to do is I think something that would kind of help in this discussion is, um, uh, is, to, is to review something that Martin Luther wrote. Now, you think, what? No, no, no. The reason I'm going to, I'm going to quote Martin Luther here is because I think that Martin Luther is correctly teaching and understand and conveying what God's Word teaches when it comes to sin, the law, and repentance. And I think that that will help this conversation. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch gears. And if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that earlier today, I tweeted out uh, a a blog post that asked a question, and I was soliciting your responses. I'm going to read that question, read some of your responses, and then reveal to you why I asked that question and what it has to do with where we're at in today's program. And and then in the second hour, I'm going to run a little bit late on this next segment, but in the second hour, I'm going to be playing a good sermon. and the uh, the good sermon is about uh, the foolishness of preaching. Yeah, the foolishness of preaching as it pertains to evangelism. So you don't want to miss any of that uh, as we continue along the lines today. I'm still in one of those moods where I, I just can't believe that we the, where the Christian church has come to today. And I think that this is really one of those things that shows the lack of understanding of what sound biblical doctrine is and the message that we're to proclaim. We're not to—biblical Christianity doesn't say, hey, come follow God. Isn't it cool that we believe that God created the earth and everything? That's great and all. That's part of what we believe. But ultimately, Christianity is the proclamation of the good news, that Christ died for our sins, that he was our substitute, that that his death on the cross and his shed blood propitiates the wrath of God— and that we're called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins as as part of as part and parcel of that proclamation of the good news, and so now we've got this problem in in that you know. Let me let me just ask this question: What, if any, is the qualitative difference uh, 
between what the insane clown posse did for the last 20 years. Uh, putting out a product that glorified murder, violence, drugs, sex, uh, harsh treatment of women. I mean, all of that stuff. What's the qualitative difference between that and and let's pretend that you know some megachurch, uh, you know some you know, flagship seeker-driven church, you know, decided that what they were going to do, uh, in and this would be a megachurch, let, let's say in Nevada. Uh, that they decided they were going to open up a brothel as part of their ministry outreach. Now, I know you're thinking, wait a second, what are you talking about? Yeah, no, no, think about this. I mean, let's, you know, using this logic, listen, what we we need to, you know, we need to show people that we're them, that we're part of them, that, you know, that, you know, that, you know, before we give them the gospel. So, you know, I mean... As their ministry outreach to um, guys who, well, you know, like the Tiger Woods said, that um, suffers from some kind of, you know, sexual addiction, um, you know, and, you know, and they're into, uh, and that manifests itself while in prostitution and, you know, and and going out and having, you know, these, can you say a relationship with a prostitute? Anyway, so they, they, they frequently purchase sex. Now, I mean, so let's say that there's a... um, you know, a mega church, and it, it could be in Australia. I mean, there's prostitution is legal in Australia. I mean, you know, so you know, let let let's you know, what if uh, the folks down there at, uh, you know, at uh, you know, at Brian Houston's church down there in uh, in Australia decided they were going to open up a brothel as part of their ministry outreach to uh, guys who have who suffer from sexual addiction, and so they were looking for Christian women to volunteer, you know, to, um, you know, to be the brothel girls and um and then you know after the the you know after that thing occurred then you know the women hey listen i just want to let you know i'm a christian and i want to tell you about god and and the the amazing thing is is that you know did you know that god created sex isn't that wonderful don't you want to follow god because i follow god too is there a qualitative difference between what the insane clown posse did for 20 years and a, a church, you know, in a place where bro, uh, prostitution is legal, opening up a brothel and uh, and making that part of their ministry outreach and employing Christian women to, you know, turn tricks, you know, so that they can share the gospel with guys who, you know, maybe suffer from a, a sex addiction. Is there a qualitative difference? Personally, I don't think there is. You know, um, in other words, the ends don't justify the means when it comes to biblical Christianity. Christians, there's certain things we can't do. We have to say, no, God's word binds my conscience. And how could I treat my Lord and Savior who has purchased me with his own blood with such disrespect that I would that I would dare to call it evangelism to engage in such practices? The ends don't justify the means. We've got a problem, and it's a complete misunderstanding of sin, the law and repentance, and so um, uh, the uh, reader's edition of the Lutheran Confessions. Uh, uh, Martin Luther he wrote a, a series of articles called the Small Called Articles, and um, I want to read what they're not very long. I want to read what, what, how Martin Luther summarizes the the sound biblical doctrine in regards to sin, the law, and repentance. Let me let me read this. Martin Luther writes. He says. Uh, regarding sin, we must confess, as St. Saint, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that sin originated from one man. That's Adam. 
By his disobedience, all people were made sinners and became subject to death and the devil. Now, this is called original or the chief sin. The fruit of this sin, the fruit of this original sin, are the evil deeds that are forbidden in the Ten Commandments. Um, These include uh, unbelief, false faith, idolatry, being without the fear of God, pride, despair, utter blindness, and in short, not knowing or regarding God. Also, lying, abusing God's name, not praying, not calling on God, not regarding God's word, but being disobedient to parents, murdering, being unchaste, stealing, deceiving, and the such. Now, this hereditary sin is such a deep corruption of the nature that no reason can understand it. Rather, it must be believed from the revelation of Scripture. See Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, or Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, or Exodus chapter 33, verse 3, or Genesis 3, 7 through 19. Therefore, it is nothing but error and blindness that the scholastic doctors have taught in regard to this article. Now, the scholastic doctors are the are Roman Catholic theologians that uh, Luther was in the middle of a heated debate with. They were denying original sin. They were arguing a Pelagian position. Um, Pelagian is kind of putting it kindly. And Here's what uh, Luther said that the, the scholastic doctors, these Pelagian scholastic doctors taught. These are, these are again, Roman Catholic theologians. These guys, teaching contrary to the Scriptures, taught that since Adam's fall, the natural powers of human beings have remained whole and uncorrupted. <laughs> so, you know, no, our, our, our powers of human, you know, we've, we are, we're uncorrupted. And by nature, people have a right reason and a good will, as the philosophers teach. Yeah, this is what the Roman Catholic theologians were teaching at the time of the Reformation. Now, does this sound familiar? It should. This should sound like, hmm, there's certain seeker-driven mega-pastors that talk like this. Mm-hmm. Here, listen, here's more of what they, uh, the scholastic Roman Catholic theologians taught. They taught that a person has free will to do good and not to do evil, and on the other hand, to not to do good and to do evil. And by nature, human power, uh, by natural human powers, a person can observe and keep all of God's commandments. Yeah, the Roman Catholic Church was saying that by natural human powers, a person could observe and keep all of God's commands. And by nature, human and by natural human powers, a person can love God above all things and love his neighbor as himself. And if a person does as much as he as is in him, God certainly grants him his grace. This is the Roman Catholic position. So if a person wishes to go to the sacrament, there's no need of a good intention to do good. It is enough if a person does not have a wicked purpose to commit sin. So entirely uh, good is human nature and so effective is the sacrament. So Scripture does not teach that the Holy Spirit with His grace is necessary for a good work. This is what the scholastics teach. They teach that the Holy Spirit is not necessary for a good work. And these and many similar ideas have arisen from lack of understanding and ignorance, both about sin and about Christ, our Savior. They are truly heathen teachings. Luther says these are heathen teachings, that, and that they should not be endured. For if such teaching were true, then Christ has died in vain. A human being would have no defect or sin for which he would have for which he would have died or he would have died only for the body not for the soul since the soul is sound and only the body is then subject to death okay that's this is luther from the small called articles now let me continue 
Luther, writing on the law, says, Here we hold that the law was given by God first to restrain sin by threats and the dread of punishment and by the promise and offer of grace and benefit. All of this failed because of the evil that sin has worked in humanity. For by the law, some people were made worse sinners, those who are hostile to the law because it forbids what they like to do and commands what they do not like to do. Where, wherever they can escape punishment, they do more against the law than they did before. Those are the unrestrained and wicked who do evil wherever they have the opportunity. Now the rest become blind and arrogant. As has been said above about the scholastic theologians, they conceive the opinion that they are able to keep the law by their own powers. From this come the hypocrites and the false saints. But the chief office or force of the law is to reveal original sin with all of its fruit. It The law shows us uh, how very low our nature has fallen, how we have become utterly corrupted. The law must tell us that we have no God, that we do not care for God, and that we worship other gods, something we all would not have believed before without the law. In this way, we become terrified, humbled, depressed. We despair and anxiously want help, but see no escape. We begin to be an enemy of God and to complain and so on. This is what Paul says, quote, The law brings wrath, Romans 4.15. Sin is increased by the law. The law came to increase the trespass. That's Romans 5.20. Okay. So this is, the, the, again, the primary purpose of the law is to show you, to reveal to you original sin and all of its fruits and to cause you to despair, okay? Now, talking about repentance, Luther writes, he says, the New Testament keeps and urges this office of the law, as St. Paul does when he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that's Romans one eighteen. Also, the whole world may be accountable to God. No human being will be justified, that is, to be declared righteous in God's sight by the law. And Christ says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, John sixteen eight. Now, I want to point something out here. Come back to the insane posse methodology. They're not convicting the world of sin. They're engaging in their sin and rolling around in it with them to show them that they're just like that so that they can say, hey, look, isn't God great? Now, the law is God's thunderbolt, Luther writes. By the law, he strikes down both obvious sinners and false saints. God declares no one to be in the right, but drives them all together to terror and to despair. This is the hammer, as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine, Is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? This is not active contrition or manufactured repentance. It's passive contrition, true sorrow of heart, suffering, and the, and the sensation of death. This is what true repentance means. Here a person needs to hear something like this. You are all of no account, whether you are obvious sinners or saints in your own opinions. You have to become different from what you are now. You have to act differently than what, how you are acting now, whether you are as great, wise, powerful, and holy as you can be, here no one is considered godly. But to this office of the law, the New Testament immediately adds the consoling promise of grace through the gospel. Now, the gospel must be believed, as Christ declares, repent and believe the gospel. That is, 
become different, act differently, and believe my promise. John the Baptist preceding Christ is called a preacher of repentance, but this is for the forgiveness of sins. That is, John was to accuse all and convict them of being sinners. This is so that they can know what they are before God and acknowledge that they are lost, so that they can pre- be prepared for the Lord, as Mark 1.3 says, to receive grace and to expect and accept from him the forgiveness of sins. This is what Christ himself says. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations. Luke twenty four forty seven. So whenever the law alone exercises its office without the gospel being added, there is nothing but death and hell, and one must despair. Let me read that again. Whenever the law alone exercises its office without the gospel being added, there is nothing but death and hell, and one must despair, as Paul, as Saul and Judas did. Okay, uh, we're talking about uh, Saul from First Samuel and Judas from Matthew chapter seven. Saint Paul writes, "Through sin, the law kills." See Romans seven ten. On the other hand, the gospel brings consolation and forgiveness. It does so not just in one way, but through the word and the sacraments and the like, as we will discuss later. As Psalm 130 verse 7 says, against the dreadful captivity of sin with the Lord, with the Lord is plentiful redemption. However, we now have to contrast the false repentance of the sophists with true repentance in order that both may be understood better. Luther continues, uh, this is the section on false repentance of the papists, or the, uh, those papists would be Roman Catholics, okay? It was impossible for them to teach correctly about repentance since they did not know what sin really is. As has been shown above, they do not believe correctly about original sin. Rather, they say that the natural powers of human beings have remained unimpaired and uncorrupted. They, the papists, believe that reason can teach correctly so that the will can do what is right, and God certainly bestows his grace when a person does as much as he can according to his free will. Now, I want to point something out here. This position that Luther's describing of the Roman Catholic Church, this is exactly the same teaching of Rick Warren. This is exactly what Rick Warren teaches. It's the exact same teaching. Let me continue. Now, according to their dogma, they need to do penance only for actual sins. Those would include only the evil thoughts that a person yields to, or evil words and evil deeds that free will could easily have prevented. According to these people, wicked emotions, lust, and improper attitudes are not sin. They divide repentance into three parts, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. They add this consolation and promise. If a person truly confesses and renders satisfaction, he merits God's forgiveness. He has paid for his sins before God. So even in repentance, they taught people to put confidence in their own works. This is where the expression comes from that was used in the pulpit when public absolution was announced to the people. Prolong, O God, my life until I can make satisfaction for my sins and amend my life. That was... That was what was uh, prayed uh, as part of the public absolution in the Roman Catholic Church in the uh, 16th century. There was here no mention of Christ and faith. People hoped to overcome and to blot out sins before God by their own 
works. With this intention, we became priests and monks so we could protect ourselves against sin. As for contrition, this is how it was done. No one could remember all of his sins, especially those committed over an entire year. So they inserted this provision. If an unknown sin is remembered later, it too has to be repented of and confessed and so on. Until then, the person was commended to God's grace. Furthermore, since no one could know how great the contrition ought to be in order to be enough before God, they gave this consolation. He who could not have contrition in the least ought to have attrition. I I call that a contrition or a beginning of contrition. The fact is they themselves do not understand either of these terms uh, any more than I do, and such attrition was counted as contrition when a person went to confession. If anyone said that he could not have contrition or lament his sins, as might be the case uh, with illicit love or the desire for revenge, etc., they asked whether he wished or desired to have contrition. And one, and one would reply, yes, for who saved the devil himself would say no. They accepted this as contrition. They forgave him his sins on account of his good work of his. Here they cited the example of St. Bernard and others. So what's going on here is you've got this entire elaborate system that basically is false repentance, okay? Because who you don't need a crucified and risen Savior for any of this, and Luther properly points this out in, uh, in the small call called Articles. So what I would recommend you do, I, I don't have time to read all of it, but I want to point all this out because if you don't properly understand sin, if you believe that sin is only thought deep and that you have, and that sin is only the things that you actually do, and sin isn't, it, it, whereas the scripture teaches, sin is committed in thought, in word, and in deed. And it springs from our corrupted natures, okay? And, you know, and that, that you know, our corrupted sinful flesh strives after sin, to commit sin, then you don't understand it properly. Now, all of this in mind, okay, we're going to segue into the question that I asked earlier today on uh, on my uh, Letter of Mark blog, okay? The question that I asked on my Letter of Mark blog takes a little bit of explaining, but um, not exactly. This question that I ask springs from something I read over the weekend that has its origin in Rick Warren. Surprise, surprise, but I think it's important. So let me let me read the uh, Letter of Mark blog to you. And the name of the headline is Gift or Wage. And I solicited uh, your responses. And uh, I think that the, your responses as well as the question are important. So I'll read some selected uh, responses to the question. The question was gift or wage. Here, here's what I wrote. Webster's Dictionary defines a gift as noun, something voluntarily transferred by one person to another without compensation. Let me read that again. A gift is something voluntarily transferred by one person to another without compensation. The same dictionary defines a wage as a noun, which is a payment usually of money uh, for labor or services, usually according to contract and on an hourly, daily, or piecework basis. Okay, so you got your definitions here of a wage and a gift. So a a gift is something transferred by one person to another without compensation. A wage is something that is done with compensation. That's the gist of it. Okay, so that being the case, here's the question I, I ask. Imagine you and I, 
That's right. You and I, uh, oh, listener of Fighting for the Faith, pretend that you and I have a face-to-face relationship, a a friendship, and that one day I told you that I had a very special gift that I wanted to give you. Yeah, and and that the gift I wanted to give you was very precious and would bless your socks off. Yeah, I I assure you that, that that I was giving you this gift purely out of the kindness of my heart. But... But there were some conditions to your receiving this gift. Now, here are the conditions, all right? You ready? There's five of them. Condition number one, you have to meet with me every day for 20 to 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Number two, you have to read, study, and master the content of all of my writings. Yeah, I'm a prolific blogger and writer, and um, it's just a matter of time before my books are published. And and so you have, if you want this really special gift or blessing that I'm going to give you, you've got to well read and study and master the content of the entire body of my writings and work. Number three, you have to give me ten percent of your gross income for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Number four, you have to encourage other people to read my writings. And number five, you have to participate in a weekly small group that is dedicated to reading and discussing my writings. Okay, so I'm going to give you this gift, but there's five conditions before I can give you the gift. Well, you've got to meet them before I can give it to you. So here's the question. Is the gift that I am promising to give you really a gift or is it a wage? Using the definitions above, again, the definitions. A gift is something voluntarily transferred by one person to another without compensation. A wage is a payment usually of money for labor or services, usually according to contract, on an hourly, daily, or piecework basis. Now, I open this up for for responses, and let me read some of them, okay? Uh, Kerry writes, he says, wage, uh, conditions, conditions, conditions. I do not have to do any of those five things, but I sure want to, okay? Uh, you know, uh, Becky says it's definitely a wage. Jude says absolutely a wage. Um, <laughs> George Ellerick chimes in. He says, well, I would posit here uh, there is a third way to see this. Oh, okay. And mostly from the perspective of a person creating the requisites. I I would say from the perspective, it seems that there is a distorted view of how relationship could and should work. It seems like this person feels the need to overdefine the relationship to the point that the receiver isn't really receiving anything but is under the guise of receiving something in lieu of the requirements. If anything, the receiver is the one who's giving the gift giver is the one who's taking under the guise of giving. Yeah, I, I rarely understand George Ellerick. If you all understood that, can you send me a translation? Okay, moving along here. Let's uh, let's see. Kim writes. He says, "No, those five strings that are attached make it something other than a gift. I don't think it fits the definition of a wage either. But it's not a gift. Perhaps I'd call it a prize." When I see those annoying internet sales pitches that say free gift, but I have to buy something to get the gift, I don't consider it a gift. The free item just sweetens the pot a little, so to speak. You know, Kim, you bring up a good point. I remember back when the iPad first came out. Um, Think back. I mean, the iPad was the number one thing that everybody had to get. I mean, it was it was the I mean, it was the coolest gadget around. I think it still is. But the point was is that uh, shortly after the announcement of the iPad and when it and shortly after it came out, 
I saw a slew of advertisements that says, get a free iPad. Okay, and I'm thinking, somebody's giving away an iPad? So, uh, confession time here. I actually clicked on one of those uh, advertisements to see, you know, free iPad. Someone's going to give me an iPad for free. Well, then I want it, you know, free iPad. And so I clicked on one of the ads, and it took me to a website that said that you could um, win a well, – well, you would be qualified to receive a free iPad, but there was a catch. And that was is that you had to sign up for five different things offered by their different sponsors. And, you know, there was like a, a, a you know, day spa kind of thing. There was a, There was even something offered by a Christian group offering videos that explained the Christian faith. There were things, you know, there was a, so, but in order to get the free iPad, you had to jump through these five hoops and, uh, and each of the hoops required you to spend money. There was like a magazine subscription service. And so at that point, it, it, the, no, that wasn't a free iPad because by the time you'd signed up for all five of the different services, you'd spent pretty much close to what the iPad actually costs. So, but you, you weren't actually paying Apple for the iPad. No, 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 no. The app, iPad was free after you paid all these other, these, these five different sponsors for their products that you may or may not really need. But I mean, you're, you're going for the iPad. So no, it wasn't free at that point. Anyways, I, I remember that. Um, Jen writes, she says, the fact that there are conditions makes it a wage by definition. You've illustrated an agreement or a contract. Many Protestants would say that we must have faith as a prerequisite or that we must choose Christ, but that is not true. But we do forfeit benefits of the gift if we reject the giver. Okay. Um, Brett writes, he says, while the question you've asked is surely intended to carry over to proper theology, the question is strictly, is strictly is of a non-theological nature, because Webster also defines a condition as a, quote, premise upon which the fulfillment of an agreement depends. The obvious answer to the question is that if it is not a gift which requires no conditions, but a wage which requires services, imagine as a parent your 10-year-old boy wants, uh, wants a wee for Christmas. You have had a great year swashbuckling and terrorizing others on the open seas, and you have uh, you have the cash to make your wish come true. And secretly, you want to uh, you want one too, but your wife won't let you. You tell him that you will buy him the Wii on the basis that he is a good boy. If he's not a good boy, he does not get the Wii. A good boy includes cleaning up your room when you're told, sweeping the porch, helping clean up after dinner. Your kid happily obliges, and by Christmas, you get him. Is we is this in any sense a gift from the parent? Well, my first thought is is that it is because the kid doesn't deserve the we. However, because you gave him conditions by which he could receive the we, he does deserve the we. He held up his end of the transaction. Therefore, while one can argue whether the chores and the child did the merits of the we, at the end of the day, it's not a gift; it's a wage. Well argued, Brett. Good job. Uh, one person. Uh, let's see here. Um, <laughs> One person says it's not a wage or a gift; it's a scam. <laughs> right? It's a scam. It's a scam like those internet, uh, it, like those internet things here. One person says it, it sounds a lot like Amway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. It sounds a lot like Amway. Okay. Now, I don't have time to read more answers, but you get what's going on here, and I appreciate all of the uh, answers given. Well, maybe I should read a couple more. Jason writes. 
He says, based on the scenario as described, it's definitely not a gift. It's a contract. Each of the conditions have future commitments associated with them. So the implication is if I didn't fulfill them, then the gift would be taken away, which means it was never actually mine. In fact, condition number three directly applies to monetary return required in perpetuity as a result of uh, taking the gift. That's right. One of the conditions is you have to give me 10% of your uh, gross income for the rest of your life. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I don't. Uh, you, you get what I'm talking about here. There's there's something um, there's something uh, kooky about this idea. Okay. Somebody telling you they're going to give you a gift, and then it turns out that it's not a gift at all. Uh, Matthew writes. By the way, he this is another good one. Matthew writes, he says, it would be a wage, but to be honest with you, this isn't the problem modern semi-Pelagian Arminianistic Christians have. It's not how to how do I receive the gift, but how do I keep the gift? Now, Matthew, I agree with you that, you know, in the larger scheme of theology that, you know, that that's the issue in the uh, Arminian uh, semi-Pelagian uh, type of preaching. It's not how do you receive the gift, but how do you keep the gift? You, you, you're dead right, but ironically here, that's not what's in play. I'll explain in a second, but let me read more of this. So in order to keep the gift, I have to, one, remember the inventory, and to inventory my sins daily and ask for forgiveness, two, read and study God's Word, three, give 10% of my increase for the planting of seeds, do regular spiritual uh, deep cleaning, do whatever is necessary to get right with God. This is how you keep the gift. The conditions that a really, really mature Christian will meet and move from keeping the gift through works to receiving the higher blessings are usually given to be the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians. Uh-huh. Can you see how they are reflected in some interesting aspects of Eastern mysticism? For instance, this ladder to a higher blessing obviously starts with the presupposition that it can be done, which leaves a portion of society out of the journey. Those who are broken must first learn to be healed and then begin the journey. Right, yeah, it, it, you know. Matthew, I want to read more of this, but I think your your point is actually well taken. Matthew's, uh, if you want to read all of the comments, go to letterofmark.us and read this. I, 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 because of time, I can't finish all of the comments. It's l e t t e r o f m a r q u e dot us. Letterofmark.us. There are some great answers here, but. Over and again, people are pretty much siding on the on the part of a wage. Now, which comes to the part of the program where I reveal to you the the reason why I ask the question. Okay, why did I ask this question? Gift or wage? The answer is actually pretty simple. Let me read to you uh, this article written by Audrey Barrick of the Christian Post that was posted on Saturday at the Christian Post website, and the headline reads, Rick Warren prepares Saddleback for Decade of Blessings. Listen to this carefully, okay? Saddleback Church in Southern California is kicking off its Decade of Destiny this weekend in an effort to prepare the mega congregation to receive showers of God's blessings. So the Decade of Destiny, which kicked off yesterday at Saddleback Church, is an effort to prepare the folks at Saddleback Church to receive showers of God's blessings. This is Rick Warren. Quote, I want the next 10 years of your life to be the best 10 years of your life, Pastor Rick Warren told church attendees. I want you to be more blessed and less stressed. I want God's blessing on every area of your life. The Decade of Destiny is a two-month spiritual growth campaign that is aimed at moving Christians forward in their faith walk. Warren acknowledged that as their pastor, the Bible holds him accountable 
for the congregate for the congregation's spiritual growth. Quote, I don't take that lightly, the well-known megachurch pastor said, along with helping believers come to a position of being blessable. Let me read that again. Along with helping believers come to a position of being blessable. That's right. Well, apparently the idea here is that, well, you, you want to know why you're not experiencing God's temporal blessings right now? Well, you just haven't done the things necessary to be blessable. The campaign will also lead the church to be a blessing to the community. Quote, God blesses you so you can be a blessing to others, not just so that you can become some fat cat and self-centered, Rick Warren highlighted. The Decade of Destiny campaign was first announced during Saddleback Church's 30th anniversary celebration in April. Over the next 10 years, the church of some 22,000 weekly attendees will enhance its programs and operations and expand its campuses and small group small groups and by the end of this year, the mega church plans to have 10 different Saddleback locations in Southern California. So in preparation for the campaign, Warren studied every verse in the Bible that speaks of God's blessings. He first stressed that nobody deserves God's blessings. So listen carefully to this. This is where the hook is. Ready? Warren stressed that nobody deserves God's blessings. Quote, it's totally a gift. So God's blessings are totally a gift. God's blessings are totally a gift, the pastor and best-selling author author of The Purpose Driven Life said. Quote, God blesses because he's a good God, not because you're good. Moreover, God enjoys blessing his children, he added. Quote, God wants to bless you. He's not holding back any of his blessings. He's waiting on you. What? What? Though God's blessings cannot be earned, there is a premise to every promise, Warren noted. God's blessings are not automatic, he said. There's a condition. God promises and actually guarantees that he will bless your life if you do what he says. So it's a gift. It's totally, you you know, God does it because it's totally a gift but you can only be blessed if you do what God says. Warren warned, you can go through life and miss every blessing of God that he intended for your life. Now, here are the conditions. This is according to Rick Warren. The conditions to receiving God's blessings include, one, meeting with God daily. Two, studying God's word. Three, tithing, and helping others in need, four, sharing the good news, and five, participating in a small group. So God's blessings are totally a gift, 100% gift. They are totally a gift, but there's conditions. Yeah, you see, you can't get these blessings from God until you, well, you do what God says. And the five things that God tells you to do is you have to meet with him daily, you have to study his word, you have to tithe, you have to share the good news and participate in a small group. If you don't do those things, well, then God can't bless you with this gift. So is it a gift or is it a wage? That's a wage. That's not a gift. 
Now, let me come back to my original question. Remember my question, okay? Imagine that I have a face-to-face relationship with you, and I told you that I have a gift that I want to give you, okay? That it was very precious and would bless your socks off. I assured you that I was giving you the gift purely out of the kindness of my heart, but there were conditions, okay? And the five conditions are you have to meet with me every day for 20 to 30 minutes. You have to read and study and master the content of all of my writings. You have to give me 10% of your gross income for the rest of your life. And you have to encourage other people to read my writings and you have to participate in a weekly study. Okay, those were the conditions. All of you, almost to a man or or a woman, said that that's a wage. And rightly so. But let me change the scenario, okay? Which one is really what Christianity teaches, that if you want God's blessings, then you have to obey him in order to receive the gift? That's not a gift. I mean, at that point, the word gift doesn't have any meaning. But let me give you the Christian scenario. What if the scenario went like this? Imagine that you were in a life-or-death situation, that you had been completely trapped, and that your death was certain and imminent, that there was no way for you to escape whatsoever. And purely out of the kindness of my heart, seeing the dire situation that you were in, that I sacrificed everything that I had in order to save your life. Let me give you an example of that from, you know, you know, this is a metaphor, and I understand that metaphors kind of break down. Imagine you and I were in the army together. You know, I was skinny. <laughs> I know this is quite an imagination. I was skinny, you were skinny, and we were young, and we were stationed in Afghanistan, and the Taliban was firing on our position, and they lobbed a grenade into our foxhole. And... You were going to die, and I was going to die. And I saved your life by lying on that grenade, throwing myself on the grenade, and it blew my chest out, and you lived. Pure gift. There's no way you can pay me back. But as a result of the fact that I so selflessly and without any expectation or even ability on your part to repay me, sacrificed everything I had for you. You decided that this was going to prompt you to want to read everything that I had ever written. That you wanted to encourage other people to find out who I was. You you couldn't help but do it. I mean, your life was so radically altered by that event that you, you know that you wanted to do everything you could to make known what you know who i was and the sacrifice that i had given for you that 10% of the money that you earned went into a charitable foundation in my name to help injured soldiers or or whatever that you actually formed small group studies to get together to read and dissect you know my writings and to discuss the themes of the things that i've written is, is that a wage or is that behavior, behavior in keeping with the nature of the gift that was given to you? 
You see, that's the difference. If the reason why you're going to, quote, obey God and do these five things is so that you can, well, you know, show God that you're serious and that you can receive blessings from him, that's a wage. But when you flip this around to what the biblical teaching is regarding why we do good works, you understand this. Scripture teaches that you were dead in trespasses and sins, that there was nothing that you can do to save yourself, and you had earned God's wrath. That's what's you've you've earned it. But Christ, being rich in mercy, does the most amazing thing. He, God, becomes a man, and he lives a perfectly sinless life under the law for you. And that he died on the cross as your substitute literally sacrificing himself for you because of your sinful wretchedness to help to basically make it so that you don't have to stand before God and hear those horrible, horrible, horrible words. I never knew you depart from me into the eternal flame prepared for the devil and all of his angels, you worker of iniquity. Christ drank the full cup down to the dregs of the wrath of the, of the, the, of the wine of God's fury and wrath against sin for you. He took the bullet in your place. He laid on the grenade and had his chest blown out so that you can live. And he did this all as a gift. And he calls you to repent and to be forgiven. And it's all a gift. Would not the natural response to the outrageous, unthinkable, mind-boggling grace and mercy and sacrificial love of Christ, would that not automatically produce in you good works. When you come to God, basically say, okay, God, I'll, I'll, I'll obey these five things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause sure. I, I, I want the next 10 years of my life to be chock full of blessings. Sure. I'd be a fool to not want to be blessed by God. Sure. Okay. But let me ask you this question. Is it possible to quote, have a daily devotion for 20 to 30 minutes and not have faith in God? Yeah, it is. Is it possible to read and study the, and master the content of the Bible without having faith in God? Sure it is. You don't have to have faith to read and study and master the content of the Bible. The new atheists show that they have a profound understanding of what the biblical text says. They've studied it. They understand what it teaches. Do you have to have faith in order to give 10% of your gross income to the church? No. I mean, anybody can write a check for 10% of their gross income. doesn't take faith to do that. Do you have to have faith to encourage other people to read their Bibles? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, the cults, they tell people to read their Bibles. 
do you have do you have to have faith in order to participate in a weekly small group Bible study dedicated to reading and discussing God's word? Nope, you don't have to have faith at all for that. This is what Hebrews 11:6 is really getting at. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So when Rick Warren says, God wants to bless you and it's a gift, but here's the five conditions in order to receive the gift, he's preaching pure wage, pure self-righteousness, pure quid pro quo. And he's lying to you because Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. He's not preaching faith and repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He's preaching pure Pelagian, self-righteous, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps, pharisaical hypocrisy. It's exactly what he's doing. And unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of people who are deceived by this and buy into it because this program, this decade of destiny thing, the 60 days of, you know, making you, you know, you doing, you know, spiritually growing and maturing so that you can be blessable. Yeah. This is going to make its rounds through the seeker driven and purpose driven churches. But the thing is, is that where's Christ? Where's Jesus in all of this and what he's done for us? It's mysteriously missing because they're not proclaiming the good news. They're becoming the news. Look at, look at, look at me. Look at me. I now have a daily devotion, 20 to 30 minutes every day. Look, isn't that great? How great I am. I've made myself blessable because I've, I've, I I daily read and master uh, God's word. I have made myself blessable because I get, I now tithe 10% of my money. I've made myself blessable because I encourage other people to read their Bible. I've made myself blessable because I attend a small group study. Look at the great things that I have done. Yeah, that's not proclaiming the good news. That's making yourself the news. That's not biblical Christianity. That's not the biblical gospel. And it's not Christian sanctification. It's markedly different than what the scriptures teach. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith... You can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Good sermon coming up. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. 
Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Well into hour number two. Hopefully that uh, longer second segment was worth it as far as helping to kind of unpack what's wrong with uh, that theology. so tragic that this is what people are being fed in a Christian church. All right, time to cue up the good sermon music. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon is actually a lecture delivered by dr steve lawson at the 2008 ligonier conference entitled the foolishness of preaching yeah i think this is a good counter weight to the story that we heard regarding the um, Insane clown posse. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you might want to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me kill the music and let's just get right into it. Although I love this part. I'm sorry, I get distracted by bright, shiny objects. That was, I just love that music. Anyway, so without any further ado, here is Dr. Steve Lawson, The Foolishness of Preaching. I invite you to take God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And today in this session, I want to speak to you on this subject, the foolishness of preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want to begin by reading the text that we shall look at together during this session, 
beginning in verse 18. It is a signature passage written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth to highlight the centrality of the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18, this is the Word of God. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews seek for signs, and Greek Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The city of Corinth was located in southern Greece, about 45 miles west of Athens, and was fully immersed in the Greek culture. By far the crown jewel of all of the liberal arts education from the academies there in the Greek culture was to set forth the golden-tongued orator. The Greek orators were the elevated celebrities of their day. They rose above the government officials and even the champion athletes and placed on the highest pedestals in Greek culture. The people of the first century in Greece loved polished eloquence in public speech. They idolized those who excelled in the art of persuasion in public discourse. And throughout the Roman Empire, such eloquence in speech was the primary form of entertainment. The art of the orator was to win over his audience through various techniques of rhetoric and reason and persuasion and delivery. And the orator was always seeking to win his audience with the command of language and his way with words. The orator was dependent upon theatrics, and he was dependent upon techniques. And the success of the orator was entirely dependent upon his effect with his theatrics and with his techniques upon the audience. And only if the orator could hold his listeners spellbound was he measured and deemed to be successful. And so as a result, when the Apostle Paul came to Corinth to preach the word of the cross, 
the people there began to size him up by the standard of the Greek orator. And quite frankly, they found him to be lacking. Now, I want to point something out here. Think context of insane clown posse at this point. By the world's entertainment standards, oh, wow, they're effective. And look at their methodologies. They're showing the love of Jesus by swimming in the filth of the of, that's available in the rap industry. Yeah. Keep insane clown posse's methodologies at the forefront of your thinking here. Think seeker-driven methodologies at the forefront of your thinking as you're listening to Pastor and Dr. Stephen Lawson exegete the Scriptures, the foolishness of preaching. What was the message that Paul brought? The cross. Christ and him crucified for our sins. Paul knew nothing among them except for Christ and him crucified. His physical appearance was unimpressive. His stage presence was less than captivating. His speaking ability, they said, was contemptible. Paul was simply out of his league but in Corinth by the oratorical standards of the day. These sophisticated listeners were accustomed to holding court on those whom they listened to as they listened for the beautiful speech of orators to hypnotize them and to mesmerize them. But by this cultural standard, Paul was an embarrassing figure who fell short of their expectations. He lacked Greek eloquence. And by his own admission in the next chapter, he said he was without superiority of speech. He was lacking in irresistible phrases. He fell short of the verbal sophistication that the the people were used to. His diction common, his voice ordinary, his charm was meager. This is how they sized him up in Corinth, by the standard of the public orator. But Paul saw himself in an entirely different light. In our culture, we size people up by the standard of the entertainer. There was a different kind of public measure that he put himself under, for Paul saw himself not as a golden-tongued orator, but as a faithful herald, as a preacher. A herald was one who was commissioned by the Roman Empire to be dispatched from the throne of Caesar, to go out to the outer ex to the outer parameters of the Roman Empire and to go into a village and stand in the marketplace and gather the people around him and to lift up his voice and to make a declaration and to bring an announcement. The herald would lift up his voice and would say, good news, good news from the throne of Caesar. And it was his responsibility to bring the message given to him by Caesar and to bring it faithfully, and he was not not measured by delivery style, but by faithfulness to the message, and the success lay with the listener or failure 
whether or not they would act upon the truth that had been brought to them. The herald was not results-oriented. He was obedience-oriented. Did he faithfully discharge his mission by announcing the message that had been entrusted to him? Was he a faithful steward? Oh, amen. That's right. The success of the herald was entirely different from the orator. The orator was measured by style points. The herald was measured by substance of message. That is the thrust of what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18. He uses the language of the herald. He will not fall prey to becoming an orator and try to mesmerize his listeners and to come down to the cultural moray. Instead, he remains on the high ground that God has entrusted to him, and he must be faithful to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is the foolishness of preaching. It is not to rely upon theatrics. It is not to rely upon technique. It is to rely upon God the Holy Spirit Himself to sovereignly work within the hearts of those who sit under His message. His duty is to bring the Word of the cross to listeners and for the power of God by the Holy Spirit to come upon His listeners and to bring about the result. We so desperately need in this hour in the church today, we need heralds of the Word of God. We need to come back to the foolishness of preaching. Sad to say in the church today, exposition has given way to entertainment. Theology has been replaced with theatrics. Doctrine has been yielded to drama. Profundity has been overcome with popularity. And men are more intent on filling the building than in filling the pulpit. God help us. May the Lord raise up a new generation of men in this day who are given to the foolishness of preaching and to the foolishness of the cross and who will rely entirely not upon technique and crowd manipulation, but rely upon an accurate explanation of the truth of the Word of God, and then the power of the Holy Spirit to bring it home to the hearts of the listener. As we look at these verses today, beginning in verse 18, I want you to note several headings of truth with me as we walk our way through this text. First, in verse 18, I want you to note that the herald is marked by the straightforward message. In verse 18, the success of the herald demanded a straightforward delivery of the message regardless of what the results would be. And the message cannot be altered in order to gain a better hearing with the audience. Notice in verse 18, again, for the word of the cross is to them who are perishing foolishness, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of the cross. It is the herald who brings the message of the cross, and he brings the centrality of Christ in him crucified. And he realizes that everyone in his audience will find themselves on one of two sides of the cross. Everyone in this world is either perishing or is being saved. There is no middle ground. Everyone is either on the broad road headed for destruction or on the narrow path that is headed to life. And it is the role of the herald in the foolishness of preaching to set forth the word of the cross. The word of the cross here encompasses the entire gospel message that is rooted and grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It refers to the gospel in all of its fullness, the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is a bloody cross. It is an offensive message. It is a shameful death. And in the ears of the world, it is a distasteful announcement that the herald brings. And yet, he is responsible to God to discharge his duty to bring the entirety of the message. Notice it says, for the word of the cross is foolishness. It is the Greek word moros, from which we derive the English word moron. It means nonsense, folly, pointless, irrelevant, idiotic, stupid, mindless, inane, bane. That is what the cross is to the natural man. He tells us in chapter 2 and verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are moros, they are foolishness to him. And those for whom the cross is foolishness, these are those who are perishing. It is in the present tense, meaning already right now, while yet in this world, they are in the self-destructive mode of perishing because of their sin. And what specifically is the foolishness of the preaching of the cross? It is found in this. Crucifixion was a horrible death. It was a shameful death reserved for only the worst criminals, for insurrectionists, for murderers. It was so violent that no Roman citizen could be crucified. And what the gospel says is that God became a man, and He became a a carpenter, a lowly carpenter, and He was subjected to the most ignominious death known to man, the shame of the cross. And he was crucified publicly, lifted up to die as an enemy of the Roman Empire. And what the foolishness of the cross says, that every man and every woman's eternal destiny is determined by their relationship to this cross. And for those for whom the cross is foolishness, and they turn away, these are those who are perishing. But he goes on to say, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is 
that which the world sees as shameful and folly has become to us the treasure of the riches of the grace of God. For in the cross alone there is the power to save from the penalty of sin, justification, power to save from the power of sin, sanctification, and power to save from the presence of sin, glorification. This was the straightforward preaching that Paul brought to Corinth as he stood in the midst of the panoply of the gods. And as the orators of the day and the philosophers of the day surrounded him on every side, Paul would not cater to the cultural trends of the day, but instead he dusted off a high place. And as a faithful herald who had been dispatched from the throne of God, he brought the word of the cross that would define the eternal destiny of everyone who heard him. This is the straightforward delivery, and this is what is so desperately needed in the church today, for there to be men who are raised up, who preach the book, the whole book, and nothing but the book, and they hold high the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to note second in verse 19, the scriptural support. Paul now establishes that what he just stated in verse 18 is nothing new but was taught throughout the Old Testament. In verse 19, Paul says, for it is written, and he now quotes Isaiah 29 verse 14, God Himself is the speaker in this text. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. This wisdom is defined for us at the end of verse 20. You will note that it is the wisdom of the world. And God says, by the preaching of the word of the cross, He will expose the bankruptcy of the way of the wisdom of the world as the light of the truth will expose the darkness of this world's ideologies. In the first century, the Greek philosophers, as they debated their ideologies and their philosophies, there was contained in in all of this discussion the essential meanings of life, the origin of the universe. Who am I? What am I? Where am I going? What is my eternal destiny? How can I live life? And the wisdom of the world was man's answers to all of these issues in life. They were man's solutions and man's perspectives and man's philosophies. And God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And it is a statement of the exclusivity of truth in the wisdom of the cross. In verse 20, Paul now challenges the so-called great wise men of the world to step forward in Corinth and to answer this challenge. Paul now taunts and he mocks as he stands confidently in the word of the cross. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Paul is saying, let him come forward and answer God's wisdom in the cross 
knowing that there is salvation alone in the cross of Jesus Christ. Where is the scribe referring to the professional who is skilled in learning? The Jewish expert in the law, let him step forward with his ideas and match wits with the infinite genius of God in the cross. Where is the debater of this age? Where is the one who has been skilled in rhetoric and presenting the ideologies of this world? Let him come forth and match the wisdom of God in the cross. He concludes at the end of verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? All that the world has to offer in their solutions to the human dilemma, all that the world would put forward, Paul says, is utter nonsense. It is mindless. There is but one solution to the human dilemma of being separated from a holy God, and it is the word of the cross. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Peter said, there is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And Paul said, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. This is what Paul is saying here, and it is rooted and grounded in Old Testament revelation, Old Testament Scripture. There is but one way of wisdom, and it is the way of the cross. In verse 21, I want you to note the spiritual reality. Paul now sets in contrast the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of the cross, the so-called foolishness of the cross. And Paul shows in verse 21 that they are headed in two totally different directions. They do not run parallel. They are going in opposite directions. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, in the sheer genius of the infinite mind of God, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, through its own man-made religions, through its own man-made philosophies, through its own man-made ideologies, the world through its wisdom, note this, did not come to know God. Oh, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the end of death. Paul is stating here that there is only one way to know the God of the universe, and it is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has pleased God that it be this way, the centrality of the cross and the primacy of the death of the Son of God. He goes on to say in verse 21, God was well pleased. This is what delights the heart of God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, the supposed foolishness. 
at least in the ears of the unbelieving. God was well pleased through the foolishness for the, 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 the baneness, the moronicness of the message preached to save those who believe. Even the message itself was to be brought in a foolish manner. It was not to be brought with theatrics that would trivialize the centrality of the cross. It was not to be brought using techniques and manipulation through crowd control. No, God designs not only the message, but also the method by which this message would go forth. And it would be in the weakness of preaching, as a man would stand before others, trusting in only the truth of the Word, and trusting only in the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting in the sufficiency of the Scripture and the sufficiency of the Spirit to win over those for whom we're appointed to believe. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God delights in taking what is foolish in the eyes of the world to save lost sinners. God delights in taking what is ridiculed by men to redeem them. God delights in taking what is mocked by men in order to save them. This is the infinite genius of God at work to take the apparent weakness of the message and the apparent weakness of the method in order that His power and His wisdom might be put on display. I want you to note fourth in verse 22, the simple presentation, for that is what the order does. Excuse me, that's what the herald does. He simply brings the truth, and he is reliant upon God to bring it home. He understands that the herald can only bring the truth to the ear, and he can go no further, that it is God who must bring it from the ear to the heart. And so we read in verse 22, for indeed, Jews asked for signs. The message was not enough for them. The truth preached in their eyes fell short of their expectations. They wanted to be entertained. They wanted the wow factor. They wanted a display of power. They wanted a power religion to supposedly prop up this simple little message give us signs, give us wonders, give us miracles. And the Jews in this day were looking with messianic expectation for there to be a conquering Messiah who would come and break the yoke of oppression of the Roman Empire and remove it from their neck. But yet Jesus and the apostles came in the simplicity and the centrality of preaching the word of the cross. For indeed, Jews asked for signs, and they would not cater to the demands of the crowd. And Greeks seek for wisdom. Oh, they wanted brilliant reasoning and dynamic debate. 
Truth be known, there is no greater profundity to ever enter the human mind than the heights and the depths and the breadth and the length of the truth of God that is contained in the Word. But for these Greeks, it was too simple. It was not enough as they had every kind of learning. And Paul responds in verse 23, again, we will not cater to the crowd. We will not do surveys door to door and find out what people want and then give it to them. No, we receive our message from God. And we have been dispatched by God. And we bring to you the message of the cross and the word of the cross, and it will come in the way that God has prescribed. And so he says in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. We announce, we declare, we make proclamation as a herald would lift up his voice upon entrance into a faraway village, and we make known the message of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul preached the full counsel of God. He said that to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20. But as he says, we preach Christ, he is speaking here of the primacy and the centrality of the message of the cross. And just as all roads lead to London, so all texts lead to the cross. And Paul says, we preach Christ and Him crucified. In Colossians 1.28, he simply said, we proclaim Him. This was the responsibility that was entrusted to the herald, who trusted not in technique or theatrics, who would not cater to the whims of the crowd, who would not be measured in his ministry by the applause or the style points that would be given to him, but who preached quorum Deo as in the presence of God, seeking only God's approbation and would be faithful to bring the entire message that is rooted and grounded and anchored in the cross that, is, that separates all of humanity, that all are either perishing because the cross is foolishness to them, or those who are being saved because they have come to see that the cross is the wisdom of God and it is the power of God. And so he says to Jews at the end of verse 23, a stumbling block. This word stumbling block, scandalon, from which we derive the English word scandal or scandalize. To those uncircumcised hearts and those uncircumcised eyes in Israel, the preaching of the cross was an offense to them and an absolute scandal and to Gentiles, foolishness, mindless, pointless madness, that my eternal destiny is governed by my relationship to this man who hung upon a cross in Jerusalem. I come finally to verse 24, the sovereign call. 
If the message of the cross is such madness and folly, the question that begs to be asked is then how does anyone come to believe? How can anyone see through the, the idiocracy of the cross and come to see the wisdom of God and see the power of God that is in the Son of God as He hangs suspended, bearing the sins of His people, making the only way of access into the presence of an infinitely holy God. If the message of Christ crucified is so repugnant, how is it that anyone ever comes to Christ? Do we need to trivialize the message in order to relate to the, the, the lowness of those to whom we speak? Do we need to dress the message up in worldliness to make it more appealing to blind eyes? You know, sing rap music lyrics dressed up in scary clown costumes while glorifying sex, violence, obscenity. You know, like the, the insane clown posse. Paul gives us the answer in verse 24. And the foolish message, the cross, and the foolish method, the preaching of the Word of God, God Himself guarantees the success of the Word of the cross by sovereignly, effectually, irresistibly calling out of the world of darkness those whom the Father has chosen before time began and entrusted to the Son, those for whom Christ has died. It is the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to summon them and to arrest them and to apprehend them and draw them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The herald does not bring the message like the orator. The herald speaks the truth, and he trusts in the calling of the Holy Spirit of God to bring to Christ those, those who are appointed to believe. And so we read in verse 24, but to those who are the called. This refers to all of the elect of God, all of those who have been appointed to eternal life. In fact, look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Note the next verse. But God has chosen. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Standing behind the calling of God is the sovereign, unconditional election of God. And all those whom the Father has drawn a circle around their names in eternity past and set His heart upon them with distinguishing love. Now, you'll notice uh, Steve here is preaching limited atonement. This is where I would disagree with him. Okay? That being said, everything else that he is saying is absolutely spot on. Now, here's the funny part. 
we Lutherans don't have a problem saying not everybody's elect. These are those when the word of the cross goes forward. These are the ones who are called out of the world into personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, look at chapter 1, verse 2. You will note in verse 2 the word called is used twice. Note the order of this. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, notice this, saints by calling. That is the effectual, sovereign call of the Holy Spirit. Every saint who has come to the cross by faith has come by divine appointment because they have been called by God effectually. Now continue to read verse 2. And all who in every place, note this, call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who call upon the name of the Lord... Romans 10, verse 13, "'Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation are those who have already been called by the Holy Spirit into fellowship with Jesus Christ.'" Look at verse 9, he makes it clear again, the call of God. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This calling is not simply into ministry or into service. This call is unto salvation. This call is unto eternal life. And Paul said in Romans 8 verse 29, those whom He foreknew, He predestined. And whom He predestined? These he called, in whom he called. These he justified, in whom he justified. These he glorified. The group that God began with in eternity past is the group God concludes with in eternity future. There are no dropouts along the way. No one is added along the way. And it is the effectual call of God that brings to bear the eternal election of God. And the preacher knows this. This is the foolishness of preaching, that he need not beguile his listener. He need not seduce the ears of those who sit under his preaching. He need not resort to to theatrics and drama and techniques. He need not trivialize the purity of the preaching of the cross. His responsibility before God is to be the faithful herald who has been entrusted the oracles of God and who is to go into the highways and the byways and to go to every living creature and to bring the word of the cross and to know that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will open blind eyes, will open deaf ears, will circumcise closed hearts, will activate dead wills, and will bring a bride to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the so-called foolishness of the cross. But to those who are the called, he said, both Jews and Greeks... 
Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That is what happens at the moment of regeneration. Eyes are opened, and that which was once foolish is now seen for what it is. It is the wisdom of God in the cross. And that which once seemed to be uh, weakness, a Jew hanging upon a cross and crucified in my eternal destiny, dependent upon Him, suddenly now I see that it is the power of God for my salvation. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What once looked was looked down upon as the foolishness of God, and the hearts of the called, it is now the cherished wisdom of God, and it is brought about by the power of God. Every one of us here today who are the called, every one of us are heralds in one capacity or another. Some of us are set apart to preach. Others are set apart to teach. But we are all set apart to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this sense, we are to be heralds. We are to be faithful to our calling and to speak the word of the cross in this dark and sinful world. And we know that God the Holy Spirit always goes before us, and the elect in this world, when they hear the word of the cross, God will open their ears to hear, and God will open their eyes to see, and God Himself will guarantee the success of the preaching of the word of the cross. And this was well-pleasing to God that it would be so, so that no man may boast before the Lord, and that no flesh may boast before God. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that it is well-pleasing to You to send forth Your heralds to send forth your witnesses, to send forth us, your people, into this world to bring the message of the cross. And Lord, we desire not to corrupt that message, nor do we want our methodology in any way to dishonor you. We put not our faith in techniques or that which would manipulate crowds. Our faith is in the Word of the cross and in the power of the Holy Spirit to call to Christ those whom you have set your heart upon in eternity past. We thank you, God, that we have the indescribable privilege of caring and bearing your message to the ends of the earth. Oh, God, would you be pleased to bring glory to yourself as we carry the word of the cross to those across the street as well as to those around the world. May you be pleased in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Does that help frame a proper understanding of what is tragically wrong with what the insane clown posse has done? Rather than bringing the foolishness of the cross, they've brought disrepute to Christ and made clowns of themselves. May God grant them repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. It's a partnership. And the way you partner with us is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. You know the shtick. Visit the website. We truly need your partnership. Pick one of the buttons, fill out the stuff, and again, I want to thank you in advance for all of your support. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you'd like to email me, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.